Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. And a great welcome to my co-host, Steve McDonald. Morning, Steve. Good morning, Nick. Lovely to see you here. You've been down in Adelaide, my hometown, over uh, the weekend. Yes, just a very quick trip down to Adelaide to screen the documentary From Shock mm. to Awe, which went very, very well on yes. Saturday. Yes, so that's the, the third screening. We did one here first up in Byron a few weeks ago, uh, one in Brisbane last weekend, and Adelaide just gone. Yeah, and enjoyed Sydney Adelaide, made some good contacts down mm. there, yeah. uh, therapists and scientists and the like, mm. got lots of interest. Fantastic. Now, on today's show, um, we're looking at, uh, well, a couple of themes, but... Um, What's what's the sketch? Well, it's all about fear today. <laughs> so uh, it kind of puts us in line with the rest of mainstream media, I guess, doesn't it? <laughs> fear, false evidence appearing real. That was the old sort of new age quotient, but it's quite got a good, um, it's not a bad message. Yeah. Um, you know, I, mean. I think obviously fear is growing as we move into this mm. very significant period of global change. Mm. And the uncertainty rises. I, most people don't know what's going on, why things are changing, where we're headed. And of course, uh, there's all this talk about the sixth major planetary extinction yep. and climate change being a major threat. And how do we deal with all that? What do we do with it? Yeah, yeah. well, that's right. And uh, we are encouraging you, as always in this show, to uh, perhaps, uh, as, as, as you do in your particular way from where you come from, to look uh, at these things perhaps in a different light and to look for the, the positive. And I think uh, one of the things we're thinking about is how fear can sometimes uh, quell the natural light of a person, the natural ability to radiate, if you will, without getting too cosmic about it. That's right. And sometimes it can be really useful as well. Right. So fear can be useful. So that's the other side of the equation here. Yeah. So, so yeah. Don't, don't be afraid to text in if, you're in if you want to join the conversation. <laughs> if you're deeply afraid, text in immediately. And you can do that, of course. And you should you should remember this now if you're a regular listener to the show on 04373. Four triple one nine zero four three seven three four triple one nine. Always like to hear from you. That's for sure. You're on Future Sense now here on Bay FM. It's uh, nine fourteen. Fear. Uh, it's a it's a big topic. Um, it is. There's lots we can say about it. And let's start by just mentioning that it is a normal aspect of human nature. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the most basic human emotions. That's that's shared by all humans, and uh, not just humans, of course. Um, all sorts of organisms as well yeah. seem to feel fear. Uh, and uh, I think in the first tier of consciousness, which is looking at humanity uh, overall from hunter-gatherer times through to now and just, just beyond now into this emerging postmodern paradigm, mm. it's still a key driver right through our existence. You know, how do we survive in this world in different ways? Mm. And in each one of the layers of consciousness, which equate to the, the human paradigms, eras, uh, there, there are key fundamental questions like, you know, if the, for example, at layer three, if the world is a jungle, how do I survive in the jungle? You know, how do I fight to, for my own survival? Um, and uh, that the nature of the tw the question changes as we move through the different paradigms or eras, but the fundamental focus on how do I survive is still there. Yeah. 
I'm thinking as you speak that, of course, as we come in as babies, um, we probably don't have uh, direct fear, but we very quickly learn to be afraid, I guess, from the parents, uh, from our parents or caregivers, uh, having their own fear about our well-being and the well-being of the surroundings and trying to make that safe and natural uh, primal safety that we all need as creatures, as biological beings. Uh, so, uh, but it's interesting that we probably don't come in with fear, or do we? I, I would I argue that we do. I okay. mean, I, I guess it depends it how you define fear. But mm-hmm. if you think of fear as a survival-driven alarm system that alerts us to some kind of threat, uh, whether it be threat to harm, mm. uh, threat threat of harm rather, or threat of not surviving. I mean, if you stop feeding a baby, sooner or later the baby is going to be alarmed, right? Yeah. Uh, so you could see that as a fundamental kind of instinctive fear of not surviving. Not surviving, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we do learn from our life conditions, the people around us and, and our experiences, to associate certain things outside of us with fear. Mm. You know, for example, uh, I can remember being taught to be afraid of snakes when I was a kid. Mm. Yeah. And and uh, those sorts of um fears that are taught at a very early age can be very, very strong and difficult to get beyond. Yeah, sure. um, and that's certainly true. Oh, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, too, that we probably impose, if you will, or uh, you know, lay upon our our children these days a lot more fears than we used to. I mean, it's arguable as well, of course. There's always been fearful things in, in life, if not nature, something that we've created that's dangerous. Don't stand on the edge of a ledge, you know, don't touch the hot stove and so forth. So those things we learn. But it would seem today that there's a lot more to be afraid of. I think there's some truth in that. I mean, survive, we are living in a more complex world, and so the greater complexity you know, brings more things to potentially be afraid of. Mm. But it's also interesting just to look back at the similar patterns in the past, and one of the things that comes to mind is this fear of exposing children to screens, like computer screens, phone screens, yeah, and those yeah. sorts of things. And then if you look back to the time when wireless radio was first invented you can see exactly the same lines being used you know this is going to ruin our kids we can't let them listen to the radio those sorts of things so uh, it's also good to be mindful of repeating patterns you know same old same old and and all that of course is indicating how we are afraid essentially of change whatever that change may be yeah that's a really interesting thought actually fear of change and also fear of no change no change (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for, for example, you know, in most religious uh, yeah. <laughs> belief systems that talk about hell or its equivalent, hell is a place where nothing changes. My, it's, it's like you go there, it's not good, and it doesn't change. My uh, my Latin teacher at school used to say, you know, when he was mad at us or me or somebody, he'd say, you'll be going down the slippery slope into the eternal bonfire, that notion of the etern- yes. eternality yeah. of hell, that it will never change, it will be nasty and awful forever. Exactly. Uh, that's a pretty scary thing. That's, uh, that's been a, a very successful uh, uh, message that's been perpetrated by religions in particular for a long time. Absolutely. And in our present time, you know, the media plays an enormous role in spreading fear. And I, I guess partially at least because there's a demand for it, right? People have this fascination with things <laughs> It's all supply wrong. and demand. <laughs> <laughs> if you need some fear, we'll give you plenty of it. That's right. You want more? More. We'll give you more. You know, take, so a, true. take a look at the, the kind of media that gets put out by Hollywood <laughs> and how much fear is built into that. And it's almost like they've got a checklist of things that they must include in a movie. You know, you've got to have a gunfight. You've got to have a car crash. There's always got to be these things going wrong just to, to sort of uh, fulfill the quota. Or, or even more so these days, and there's all, 
there's always been the sort of end times of the word eschaton is the word for, for the, the study of the, or eschatology, the study of the end times. And eschaton is like an end time, the end of the millennium or 2012 and the end of the Mayan calendar that we were, or even 1999 at the, at the Y2K was a bit of an end time sort of moment that we that we feared. So we continually uh, we continue to put ourselves these places ahead of us where everything's going to change, everything's going to fall apart or not change. You know, and uh, that's, you know, it's amazing how we simply bow to that notion inside ourselves larger. Why? Why do we need the fear then? Well, I guess we need it as an alarm system first and foremost. You know, it's a basic survival mechanism. And I, I think it's important not to forget that, that, you know, we don't want to lose the capacity to be fearful. Otherwise, then it could, mm. you know, it could literally threaten our survival. <laughs> Um, so I think it's useful to understand it in that respect. And uh, my personal experience around this has been an interesting one, having served in the military. Yes. And, and yeah. you know, that business is all about facing death in some way mm. uh, and then suffering from post-traumatic stress as a result of serving in the war and then coming back and having to deal with that anxiety disorder. Uh, and you know, eventually get to the point where I can understand what was going on and, and regain some sort of control over my body system and, instead of letting it run off uh, without uh, any, any sense of being able to control what was going on. And I, I guess that's taught me to understand fear for what it is, to respect it as a very, very useful alarm system, but also to realize that uh, for various reasons it can also run off the rails. Well, you, you say that uh, when fear becomes uh, instinct and overrules thought, so that, that moment where um, fear as an understanding of a danger in an area of something that may or may not happen that you, know, that you need to be aware of and that level of survival perhaps, of, of, uh, literally of survival of the self, but where instinct takes over too much, then that can have pops perhaps the, the, the wrong way of actually solving the, the challenge that you're faced with. It can be, yeah. And so uh, if we th think about the three zones that humans grow through, uh, that comes from uh, integral theory, which mm. is the, the pre-rational zone to start with, which we're born into, where yeah. we're fully operating from mm. urges and instincts and immediate needs. Mm. And then we grow into the rational zone where the rational mind finishes d developing properly and then we have the capacity to uh, rationally consider our fears mm. and perhaps control them or moder moderate them in some way. Mm. Um, or use them, use them effectively, as you said. I mean, it is a tool to use where, yeah. where appropriate. It's like take notice of this. Yeah. And, and then when we're faced with some extreme fearful thing, uh, we, we can have that you know, freeze, fight or flight response. And when that happens, there's a, a biological uh, reaction which puts priority on our, our sort of survival mechanisms mm. and takes uh, blood flow and attention away from things like the frontal lobes, which are the moderating mm. uh, mechanisms. And so, um, again, just you know, going back to my military experience, a, a lot of military training is aimed at allowing people to face very, very fearful situations but not dissolve into unthinking behavior yeah, yeah? yeah. and uh, and that is is a critical thing for a, a disciplined and well-intentioned military force to be able to face fear of death and act rationally mm. in that situation so mm. that you still follow rules yeah and of course we hear 
terrible stories from time to time about situations in war where soldiers break rules and they mm. commit war crimes and those sorts of things. And these things do happen. But as a general rule, uh, you know, in a in a well disciplined military force like Australia's, that's primarily focused on defence. Um, people are trained to be able to face those extremely fearful situations, yet maintain the rational capacity to know that there are rules and rules you know, that should be followed mm. and act according to the rules. It's interesting too, of course, I'm thinking as you're speaking of uh, particularly the Vietnam War or other wars where, and certainly earlier um, missions of the Australian and other militaries where many of the soldiers are 19, 20 years old, which means, in fact, their prefrontal cortex is probably not fully developed. Perhaps not. And so, in fact, it might be quite much more difficult, arguably, for a younger soldier to find a, 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 a considered approach to fear that's facing them and not to flip back into excessive amygdala reaction and then from that excessively primal response, which can lead to mistakes. Yeah, it takes a lot of conditioning you know, yeah. to, to uh, allow people to operate in a very disciplined way in those circumstances. That's for sure. And, uh, and of course, in those sorts of situations, the commanders are usually older yeah. people you know, who have yeah. that and perhaps a, a stronger rational capacity. Yeah. So, yeah, I, and I guess the other interesting thing, looking at that uh, pre-rational, rational, and then the trans-rational zone as we evolve or develop as individuals, uh, that there is a point in this uh, first-tier, second-tier transition, which is the boundary between the rational zone and the trans-rational zone, where there's a massive reduction in fear. And we move into the, the trans-rational space, uh, and fear is no longer a major driver of behavior. And that's a very, very significant thing and, and something that uh, augurs well for the future of humanity because the more people who are operating beyond fear, then the more mm. peaceful and, and harmonious the world will be. Mm. And we'll be looking at those elements of how fear drives us and why. And perhaps, as Steve has been saying here, in some cases fear is a useful motivator. It's necessary but at other times, if it gets out of hand, it's not. And uh, perhaps uh, to solve the challenges and problems that we have on the planet currently are going to require a much more considered approach than coming from uh, a place of fear and despair and the like. We'll be back shortly here on BayFM. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick and Steve. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. You're tuned to Future Sense here with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. It's 9.31 on BayFM. 99.9 when today we're talking about fear we're talking about progress we're talking about um, well what drives us at this time and uh, how we can perhaps best be aware of what is driving us and to become as conscious as possible about those motivations behind um, behind our actions yeah uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the fearful things that are around at the moment uh, like for example climate change mm. and um, and it also the use of fear as a manipulator yeah uh, a tool for, for manipulating people, and uh, that certainly happens as well. There's a really interesting article in uh, the program Future Tense about a week ago uh, from ABC Radio that we we talk about. We will talk about just now. Um, uh, it was uh, quite a good sort of overview, wasn't it, Nick? Yes. Well, basically, I mean, there's a lot in this article. It's really fantastic, and it is from Anthony Fennell, who runs the Future Tense show. That's the other show that's almost as good as ours. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an article <laughs> about losing perspective on the true state of the world and that fear is impending our ability to make decisions and affect positive change. This is what we're focusing on in, a little impeding, bit. Impeding, yeah. Impeding, pardon yeah. me. Yeah, impeding. Um, and that the world, you know, most people 
even in this uh, relatively more enlightened bubble that we live in here, I think would argue that the world is going to hell in a handbasket in various ways, that things are getting worse and worse. This article um, is arguing on one hand that that's not really true, number one. That the the world's not getting the world's not worse. getting worse. That there yeah. are actually many indicators that the world is getting better. A simple fact I've put up this morning, for example, a hundred years ago, literacy rates overall in the world were about twenty three percent. That's pretty low. Now, a hundred years later, literacy rates and there are different estimations, but estimates, but around about eighty five percent, which is extraordinary. And I found that a little hard to believe, but it looks like it is true. That's a vast improvement in the world in a century. That's for sure. And there are many other indicators that show that in many ways the world is uh, is actually a better place. That's right. And there's a wonderful website that we often mention on this show called humanprogress.org, which has all the data on that if you want to cheer yourself yes. up and just go and see how things are really getting better rather than looking at the mainstream media, which might convince you otherwise. And that's what the next point of uh, Professor Pinker, who's quoted much in this Stephen Pinker, we, we're familiar with him, and we've talked about him a little bit before on this show, I think, and he argues that according to, uh, that our media culture itself shoulders much the blame for this negative idea, the idea that um, the only serious journalism, for example, and the only serious intellectual commentary is the one that points to what can go wrong and with forebodings of doom, and we've certainly seen plenty of that at the moment. Um, And that's itself a very interesting psychological posture that we humans have adopted at this time through media. It is. And during times of change, as, as we're in right now, uh, because things become a little unstable and the future is uncertain because for most people they don't have any map or any real indication of where we might be headed, so they just look at what's happening day to day and the, the normal human response when we don't have a map is just to think that whatever's happening now is going to keep happening. Mm. Uh, and of course this comes back to our fear of, of things not changing. Uh, and uh, we can then, and we normally do in times of change, as we often speak about on this show, is we start this regressive search where we go backwards looking for mm. something that might help us explain what's going on or help us cope with what's happening. And in the process of doing that, there is a um, reduction in the complexity of our operating system, yeah, you could say. Or we could, you could call that a dumbing down if yes. you wanted to be blunt about it. And Ignor- uh, ignorance is bliss, they used to say, and it sort of has a new meaning in this day of social media. Exactly, yeah. and and in these days of instant media, of course, uh, these things can be very easily amplified because as yeah. soon as you know one small group or community of people start sort of regressing and thinking that okay things are really bad, then it's very easy for that yeah. fear to spread in a viral way. It come, becomes a meme itself, a sort of new meme of reconfigured old fear, you could say. It does, and we're coming out of a. a scientific industrial era where the the worldview was one of uh, opportunism mm. uh, and people who see that a group another group of people are afraid of something can sometimes use that fear to manipulate people to you know whatever ends that they might desire and there's certainly some indicators of that kind of thing is going on at the moment particularly through the mainstream news media mm. yeah. absolutely it's very interesting this idea that he's bringing together in this uh, article that even a positive report, I, I really landed on this a bit too, that a sort of a positive report in media 
will be seen often as a kind of scheme or that someone's trying to sell you something. Things that are uplifting, oh, they're just trying to sell us something. Curious that we've been sort of manipulated in a way into responding to the positive in that way yeah. and to the negative in like, oh, we're concerned now, we're engaged because it's negative, it's difficult, it's proving how wrong and difficult and, and troublesome and fearful these times are. And that actually somehow resonates more with me than the positive story over here. Yeah. I personally find this, thinking about this subject, think, found, find this really extraordinary you go through a sort of list of news stories on any any news service and basically just one thing after the other of horror and terror and not to deny these things are not happening that's not what we're saying here but how do we respond to that what is the what is this indicating about the human condition itself right now yeah it's true and uh, I, I guess there are many many reasons why the people who control the media might want to spread that fear um, so, sometimes uh, it's simply about, as you said, selling things. You know, it's about getting the uh, the readership or the listenership or whatever it might be, uh, so that they can have a whole bunch of people listening to their ads. And so, mm. if there's some sensationalist, fearful story that they can run, then basically it's going to mean more money for their advertisers. Yeah, I think, as you say, that on commercial media outlets, especially free to air, commercial television, and the like, and radio too. I guess the, the negative story is then immediately countered by this glossy, glamorous uh, advertising that can pop up the next five minutes or so and flood you with all these brilliant, beautiful, amazing images of cars and fashion and amazing places around the world. And, and that's sort of counter to the hard, supposedly hard news stories that have just come before, for example. But the hard news, hard news stories themselves are now highly contested because it's very difficult to know what's actually true, Yeah, number one. One interesting connection there is that, as we mentioned earlier, when we respond to fear, we can descend from the rational operating zone down into this pre-rational zone where we're driven by our basic urges and instincts. And if you want to sell something like ice cream or perfume, then it's actually not a bad idea for, to have some the audience operating from their basic instincts. So, you know, there's definitely a strategy there. Oh. Yeah, we shouldn't mention alcohol or tobacco advertising, though, wherever that is still a exactly, yeah, uh, to yeah. be. That's up. right. Feeling fearful and worried? Have a smoke. Mm. It's interesting. Uh, part of this article, too, quotes Carter Phipps from the Institute for Cultural Evolution, a U.S.-based not-for-profit organization. He says that pessimism has become part of the modern human condition. He says that it's stripping people of both their focus and resilience. We talk a lot about resilience on, on this program, actually, and it's a word that is out and about a lot at the moment. It's a very good word, something that we, we clearly need to develop more of on this planet to, to survive, if you will, or to certainly solve the problems that we have here. But I, th I found that really interesting to say that this sort of the pessimistic view, the dark, fearful view, actually deprives people of focus and resilience. Do you think that's true? I mean, that's again, it's arguable. People who are involved in some of the Extinction Rebellion, for example, would probably argue, no, we're really focused and we're, we're battling for resilience. Yeah, but I, I think it depends on the circumstances. It, yeah. it can be true. Hmm. If, if you're looking at it from the point of view of a regression uh, in our rational capacity, like regressing that back to that uh, pre-rational zone, yeah. then it, it does deprive you of the capacity to think rationally and to you know, plan in detail. Mm. But in small doses where it, it's not enough to cause that regression, where you can still maintain that rational coping capacity, then that kind of tension mm. can drive focus. And, mm. and that is really what's behind the evolutionary trajectory that we follow when we need to go through change, yeah. is we build tension. 
and that that's just a natural thing and that's exactly what's happening in the world right now is that what we what we call the slingshot effect where we're descending back into old values which are less appropriate actually to deal with what we're facing but what they do do is they very effectively increase tension on just like increasing the tension on a mm. elastic band on a slingshot to give us the momentum to actually move forward and evolve develop as individuals I mean, uh, Carter Phipps from that Institute for Cultural Evolution then goes on to say, though, I'm just wondering if that fits into what you just said there. He says, uh, I have friends who say maybe it's all over for the human condition. It's all over. We have, to mo- we have to mourn the earth. That's the main job now. That's what we've got to do because it's all over. I mean, that's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's very much a surrender, isn't it? It's a, it's yes. a self-sacrificing uh, perspective. And that fits with the values of aggression because we're, we're moving from... The what has been the dominant worldview, which is a self-expression, modern scientific industrial perspective, and the natural trajectory of change is taking us backwards into the self-sacrifice mm. of the old authoritarian way, where we give ourselves up to a higher authority. Mm. Um, you know th- that was very uh, prominent in the agricultural era, and I guess in a sense that kind of statement is a surrender to what Mother Nature. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like yeah, it's it's I, I can't cope here. I can't change things. I just give up. I guess the question is, what is the higher authority to somebody? Because if it's if you've gone back in that kind of regressive search to, say, religion or to old institutions and structures in your life or in your family or in your nation or your culture, that's one thing. Um, but if you're slipping back um, and... Uh, I've just lost my thread. Oh, my goodness. That's because we've got a big text in. I was halfway through reading it. Do you want to read it? I'll read it. Yeah. Um, fear is the most fundamental emotion, and that is why fear campaigns win elections over compassion. And we've seen plenty of that. Love, joy, and all other emotions that connect us to others come secondary from the innate need to survive in relation to the innate need to survive, which includes the fear of not being part of the social group. Unfortunately, the reptilian brain kicks in before the rational brain, and that's why fear-based politics is winning over compassion-based politics. Great topic, guys. Max. Thanks, Max. Yeah, Yeah, thanks, Max. That's absolutely true in this first tier of consciousness. And as I mentioned before, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, is it does change when we go through this massive leap, this momentous leap that Claire Graves talked about, where we move beyond uh, the the rational way of operating into this transrational zone, and we... Uh, have a, a major, major reduction in the amount of fear that we feel. Uh, so, yeah, very, very interesting. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. 9.52 here on Future Sense. And, yeah, thanks for joining us here today. And please text in if you wish and join the conversation on 043734 We've been looking at uh, fear, at pessimism and more. And we've been looking a little bit just in the last segment about um, an article in the ABC recently called Why We See the Past Through Rose-Coloured Glasses But Not the Future. And uh, just expanding a bit on on pessimism again, um, Queensland University psychologist Roy Baumaster argues that it's a straightforward evolutionary explanation for our pessimism, and that is basically to avoid disaster, that being the first job that we we had when we were first in that that early stage of evolution. But... uh, Also, it's the case that when uh, the fear of the future uh, becomes uh, replaced by uh, a kind of romantic vision of the past, the past was better than the future can possibly be, that feelings of disempowerment and absolutism arise, the view that society is broken, 
rather than simply facing challenges and difficulties. And then we start reaching for populist leaders or messianic ideas, and that seems to resonate pretty much right now on the planet. Yeah, I think that reflects this uh, regressive value search back to layer four, the old authoritarian kind of religious thinking. Mm. And I really think there's uh, a lot of truth in the evolutionary uh, thinking you just uh, described there. Mm. If we look at how and why we broke out of layer four into layer five, so I'm talking about now out of the authoritarian agricultural era into the modern scientific industrial Mm. era, era, we went from a time of believing that all truth came from a higher authority and in many, many cases that was a, some kind of spiritual authority like uh, a god within a religious setting. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, through a series of scientific discoveries in the scientific industrial revolutions, those sorts of things, we realized that, okay, they all, those old values don't quite fit with the reality now. We're seeing things that contradict what we were told. And so these new modern values emerged. And they were, by definition, critical and cynical, you know, because they, we, those revolutions generated critical thinking or were the result of critical thinking. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which made us rethink all of our values and rethink the way we understood the world and reality itself. Mm. And I might just read a short uh, segment from the notes of Dr. Claire W. Graves, who's a developmental psychology researcher that we often talk about on this show. Mm. Uh, and he's talking here about people who are living according to the modern scientific industrial value set. And he says, they are critical and cynical, delivering cold quantitative evaluation and often harsh feedback to others. They have a disdain for empathy and as opposed to the egocentric system, he's talking there about the third layer, Mm. uh, which is previous to the agricultural authoritarian layer. Uh, As opposed to the egocentric system, they will do odds calculations and realistic probabilities, not brash risk-taking. So going back to operating systems, to that egocentric, which is back in the pre-rational zone, that's where you certainly see a similar kind of behavior, except it's very, very raw and brash, Mm. and there's no real calculation of risks. People just act. Uh, you know, according to what they need to satisfy their needs and desires and those sorts of things. Whereas in the scientific industrial, we get this rational capacity emerging where we can stop and think about the risks of doing what we're going to do and then do it in a calculated way. But I I guess the key thing is there that we evolved this critical thinking and cynical attitude in order to help us break out of those rigid authoritarian slash religious uh, ways of seeing the world. And that certainly... I think is a big contributor to this pessimistic mm. um, sort of attitude worldview. we see displayed. Worldview, yeah, yeah. we see particularly um, you know, displayed by the media. Now we, we've also uh, related this to uh, to Machiavellian pol- uh, politics. Niccolò de Bernardo de Machiavelli, of course, an Italian diplomat, politician, historian, philosopher, writer, playwright, and a poet of the Renaissance period. Could call him a Renaissance man, but he's also been called the father of modern political philosophy and political science. But, of course, he represents uh, a kind of uh, uh, lack of moral code, a moving away from that layer four moral value system to uh, an open-ended postmodern view that, well, basically anything goes. If it works and you can win from whatever you do, it can be justified in some way or other. Yeah, so that, that's a, just to correct the language here, that's a modern view, not a postmodern Sorry, view. Sorry, yes. And what we see in these systems is because these uh, mm. operating systems or worldviews or paradigms, they alternate between a focus on the individual, and a, uh, in other words, me, a focus on me, uh, and a focus on us, a communal focus. Mm. 
and we were in a communal focus in the agricultural era with the, the authorita- authoritarian system, which is very much about conforming to group standards. And it's within those communal systems that we actually construct our, our moral systems. And when we break out of those into the individually, the I, me, mine oriented systems, mm. then we break the rules. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it's all about. It's about busting out of the rigidity, the conformity into diversity once again. And it's in, in, uh, in one sentence, of course, the well-known phrase, the end justifies the means, kind of sums it up, doesn't it? But yeah, that's, it that's does. a very problematic uh, statement when you really, <laughs> you really look at it. <laughs> yeah, that's right, depending on what your role is in the play. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Graves himself called modern values Machiavellian. Uh, in fact, I'll quote from his notes here. He says, one could propose without oh sorry one could propose with descriptive design that fifth level values be called the machiavellian system yeah, right the yeah. ethic of might is right mm. um and he he also says that uh acceptance of machiavellian principles as an ethical system uh is somewhat difficult but it's essential to understanding uh the the modern conditions the modern life conditions mm. so he's quite um, clear about the, that Machiavellian nature of modern scientific industrial values and just flicking quickly to the dictionary for those of you who aren't familiar with the character of Machiavelli yeah. um, the dictionary says uh, Machiavellian is characterised by subtle or unscrupulous cunning mm. deception, expediency or dishonesty mm. Absolutely, and that's of course what's being uncovered now as we're at the end of this modern scientific industrial era we've had quite a successful spin quite a, a successful corporate image plastered over what's been going on mm. but our social media the transparency that we now have mm. within our social systems means that those veils don't work anymore mm. and so everything's being uncovered you know, we're going through this great uncovering uh, and we're starting to see all of the cunning all of the hidden agendas, the deception, the expediency, the dishonesty that has been and still is going on. One of the things I do, one of the quotes I do like from Machiavelli, which is relevant right here as you're speaking, is that the first method for estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men, or women, I guess, he has around him. And I guess if you look at some of the world leaders right now that we have on the world stage uh, who are perhaps particularly Machiavellian, you can also see the kind of people that they have around them. Just have to look at uh, the President of the United States and some of the some of the uh, uh, the characters who are still surrounding him, like John Bolton, for example, and others. Yeah, exactly. And just to step back a little bit, what's happening here in this discussion today is we're painting a picture, and the picture is showing that we're going through a values regression as a result of the increasing complexity in the world and the fact that the old ways don't work so well anymore, mm. so people are looking backwards for answers, and that is uh, absolutely an evolutionary dynamic because by looking backwards, that increases the attention for change. And in this time where people are being more and more driven by fear and they have a tendency to think in simpler ways because of the regressive values, mm. and the dominant paradigm is one of uh, acting out of cunning and expediency, You've got a wonderful recipe there for chaos. And uh, you can perhaps start to imagine how people in positions of power would see this regression happening socially, perhaps even want to feed it, perhaps even want to feed the fear and then take advantage of the fact that people are more easily manipulated when they're fearful uh, you know, to, to achieve self-serving outcomes. And that, I, I would argue, is certainly uh, the case globally at the moment. I mean, um, and referring to the article in the ABC again, also regarding this is uh, regarding future doomsaying, 
uh, is especially corrosive, especially when it's linked to a romanticised past, to nostalgia for the past. And that factors in right here, doesn't it? Because that's also encouraged in a way by those forces that we're talking about that seek to regress or take us back, is wasn't the past great when we were like that, when the things were great, the halcyon days of yeah. existence, which essentially isn't true, though it, it depends on your individual life, your perspective, your culture, everything about that. But essentially we are sold this idea that the past was better and we should return to some of those elements there because that's where we were safe, that's where we were secure. Yeah, and that is a, a great example of this regressive value search. Mm. And we hear it so often from politicians, you know, let's get back to yeah. the old ways. Make, get America, back to make America great again. Exactly. Et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Those sorts of things. Mm. The, uh, I guess the, um, the wonderful opportunity amidst all of this is to use the kind of approach that we take on this show, and that is one where uh, we're basing our, our discussions on developmental psychology, a research-based understanding of human nature. And we can look at the patterns that actually reveal the, the, the kind of thinking that's going on, mm. the kind of strategies that are being used to hack these uh, you know attempted manipulations and so we can look at for example some of the linear stories that we're being told around stuff like climate change we can see that that kind of linear thinking is actually not accurate when we're talking about complex systems and it's actually characteristic of the old agricultural way of thinking which was very rigid and linear mm -hmm. that there's only one thing that could happen there's only one likely outcome and and unless you get afraid and act then you're going to be damned to hell forever mm -hmm. And uh, that's the kind of language that we're hearing from, uh, you know, global spokespeople and, at the moment around climate change. Yeah, and you're either with us or against us. Exactly. And uh, that's a and there's no in between. There's no between. It's black and white. Problematic. We'll come to some of those topics in the second hour. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the key thing is that we can look at that and we can say, okay, something's not right here. There's some quite likely some hidden agenda going on. Yeah. yeah. We'll take a break here on Future Sense. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.